we've arrived uh, to Abraham. So we've made our way from uh, the beginning of creation, looked at Adam and Eve, and we're looking at types and shadows. Remember, God paints the shadow holding the substance in view. So Adam is a type of Christ, Eve is a type of the church. Eve wasn't created from the dust of the earth, she was created from the life of Adam. Just like we are born again, made new creations from the life of Christ. Went to the flood and, and saw the glorious picture of redemption in the flood and the grace of God in the story of flood. How through one man the world was saved. That all those who were joined to that one man were delivered and saved. Noah, a picture of Christ, how we through one man experience salvation and deliverance, and that is through Christ. So we've gone from that into uh, chapter 11, looking at the Tower of Babel and how man was united in the flesh and his work of the flesh in opposition to God, and God came down and he confused their language and took one multitude and made them many. And we said that was an antithesis or a contrast to Zion, the city of God, and to Pentecost, where at Pentecost there were many nations gathered in one place, and God came down, and out of the many, He brought into one, one nation in Christ. And so, from that point in Genesis 11, then we have a genealogy here, and Caleb went through in, in a couple of weeks and talked about the genealogy shown here in Genesis 10, the birth of the nations, how in these genealogies of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah, this is where the nations as we know them today have been birthed. And here in verse 10, let's start reading there, we have the genealogy of Shem. Now, God had already given us a genealogy in chapter 10 in terms of nations, but this genealogy in chapter 11 is different. This genealogy is going to take us to Abraham, and ultimately, where does Abraham's genealogy lead us to? It leads us to Christ. So let's, uh, let's read from Genesis 11:10 through Genesis 12:4. Just follow along with me. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Aphrax, Aphrasad, I'm sorry, Aphrasad, easy for me to say, two years after the flood, and after he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah, and he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. And after he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarag, and he begot Sarag. After he begot Sarag, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. The daughter of Haran, 
the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren and had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the sons of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out of them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, some of you prospective parents were looking for names for your children. There's a good list right there. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now we're going to stop there, and we're going to just concentrate really on those first four verses of chapter 12. I'm not going to delve into the genealogies. That genealogy is given to show us how we've come from Noah, really how we've come from the beginning of creation. God destroys all flesh in the flood. He brings salvation through one man, and now through this one man and his three sons, specifically, particularly through Shem, now the genealogy leads us to Abram, which ultimately we see in Luke's gospel uh, and in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy of Christ goes through Abraham. And so that genealogy just gives us a background and introduces to us Abram. Now, what I want to focus on, if you notice here, we get toward the end of chapter 11, and you see that Abram's father, Terah, took Abram and his grandson, Lot, and Abram's wife, and they left their country, and they were going somewhere. And they stopped in a place called Haran, and Terah ended up dying in Haran. And then after Terah dies, chapter 12 begins, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, I want to just draw your attention. If you remember when we talked about the Tower of Babel, it says that those, that multitude of people who were one, they were of one language, they were all together as one, they journeyed and they came to Babel. It wasn't called Babel then. God called it Babel. It became called Babel after God confused the language. But they came to this place on the, in, in the plain of Shinar. And in this plain of Shinar, they begin to build this city. And remember, it said that they purposed to do two things. Number one, they were going to build a city and a tower who reached into heaven because they didn't want to uh, uh, be flooded anymore. They disregarded the word of God. They disregarded the covenant promise God made with Noah. And they said, we'll save ourselves. We'll just build a city and a tower so high that if God ever floods the earth again, then we'll be above what God can do. Boy, that's a dangerous place to be, to think that you can be above what God can do. And the second thing that it said is that they purposed to make a name for themselves lest they be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, I want you to notice something. What God tells Abram, he says, I will bless you and make your name great. What's the difference between Abram and those guys on the plain of Shinar building the city of Babel in that tower? I'll tell you what the difference is. Abram did not seek to make his name great. Abraham wasn't looking for anything. God comes to Abraham, and God speaks to Abraham, or Abram at that point. His name hasn't been changed yet. And God tells Abram, get out of your country. Leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And God declares to him, I will make your name great. 
And then God goes on and he says, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he, depart, he departed. In other words, he obeyed the Lord and he left with his family. And then the scripture tells us how old Abram was when he departed from that place. He was 75. Anytime I see that the scripture tells me how old someone is, I always take my little yellow wax pencil and I mark that and highlight that. Because later on as we go through Genesis and we see that Abram, no longer Abram, but now his name's been changed to Abraham because God's going to make him the father of many nations. We see that when Abraham has the promised son, Isaac, how old is he? He is 100 years old. So from the very first time that God gave this promise to Abram, who is childless, and his wife is barren. Do you get that? Sarah is barren. She can't have children. And here comes God, and he tells Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. It had to enter Abram's mind. How are you going to do that? God, my wife is barren. She can't have children. And he's 75 years old. And from the time God first tells him, clues him in that he's going to make him a great nation, Abram waits 25 years before he sees the beginning of that promise realized with the birth of Isaac. 25 years. I don't know if 25 years is a long time to you, but if God gave you a promise... I mean, if God told you he was going to do something and you're 25 years old, and when you have your 49th birthday, you still don't see any way that God's going to do it, do you think you would question? I think I would. I would at least be tempted to question, right? So we live in a time, in a culture where we want everything automatic, immediate. Serve it up to me, God. Hot and ready. But when we read the scripture, we see that that's not how God works. From the beginning, that's not how God worked. And the promise of God, I want you to understand this, the promise of God is not bound by time unless God binds it by time. If God tells you, He's going to do something like when he came back to Abraham, he said, this time next year, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughed. Like, you're crazy. Uh, I'm 99. He's 100. Or he's 99. I'm an old lady. How's this going to happen? I'm barren. But a year later, guess what? There was the baby. There was the promise. So what's the gospel application here when we look at Abraham? We see Abram depart from his father's house to a foreign land to become a great nation. What is that, what is that communicating to us? What is that informing us? It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of Christ leaving his father's house in heaven to come to earth to redeem his people. From where? From all nations and establish one holy nation in himself. We see this from the beginning of the scripture. This is what God's plan has always been. The promise to bless those who bless Abraham is not in an ethnic or religious people in a physical land, but ultimately a spiritual people in Christ. In other words, the blessing is not an earthly people dwelling in a nation state, but a spiritual people. Listen, Dwelling in the Son of God. The blessing is for all in Christ, Jew or Gentile, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. This is the picture given to us in the book of Revelation. We're around the throne from every tribe and tongue and nation. They are worshiping God. And when 
when John is standing in this vision and he's in heaven before the throne and there is the, the, the scroll that's sealed with seven seals and the cry goes out, who is worthy to open the seal? And the Bible gives us this picture and John begins to weep because no one came forward, because no one was worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. And then all of a sudden, someone says, look, John. And John says, I behold a lamb as though it had been slain. Who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus takes the scroll and he breaks the seals and worship erupts in heaven and they sing this song, worthy is the lamb. Why? Because you have redeemed us by your blood from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. In this small room, in this small gathering today, we don't have hundreds and thousands in here, but look around. Look at the diversity. There's black. There's brown, there's white, there's young, there's old, there's poor. I don't know how many rich we got among us, but I know there's some poor among us. There's male, there's female. There's people who love green, and there's people who love red, and there's people whose favorite color is purple, and there's people who, who, who love blue, and there's people who like ice cream, and there's people who don't, and there's, I don't know why you wouldn't, and there's, there's just, we're all different. We have different likes and different tastes and, 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 and everything from our clothes to, to, to the cars we drive or the music we listen to. But amongst all of that and within all of that diversity, what God has done is God in Christ has brought us together and made us one. He's made us one in His Son. From every nation, He's called together one nation. From every tribe, He's called together one tribe. From every tongue, He's called together and He's given us a common language. It's called the gospel. It doesn't matter what earthly language you preach it and teach it in. There's one message. There's one language. We can define it by love. We looked at this today in our Bible study on Revelation. That even the judgment and the wrath of God communicates the love of God. The justice of God. Because if God did not judge sin, if God did not do what justice demands, he would not be loving. He, he, his justice would have no effect. This is why we have to have a high view of God. What Adam and Eve did in the garden is they stood in a place above God and they said, God, we don't have to listen to you. We don't need to listen to you. What we do when we judge God and we say, God, that's not fair. God, the fact that you allowed that to happen is not fair. The fact that this is happening and that is happening and you do this and you do that and you don't do that and you don't do this. When we stand in that place, we put ourselves above God and we begin to judge God and we can't do that. We can, but we do it at our peril. What does God call us to do? What do we see in Abraham's life? God called Abraham, not because Abraham was a worshiper of God. Abraham was not a worshiper of God. Abraham was born in a pagan land. More than likely, Abraham was a pagan. He probably worshiped the moon. But God came to Abram in his unbelief. And he called him. Guess what God did to us? God came to us in our unbelief and he called us. And you know what God calls us? He calls us 
his very own. So we're going to look at three points today. Christ is the great promise God has always held in view to bless his people. Number two, the church is the great nation God has always held in view to be his people. And the third is this, Christ is the great name God has always held in view to call his people. So let's look at the first point. Christ is the great promise God has always held in view to bless his people. Christ is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He is the promised land that we will read about, that you can go to the book of Exodus and begin to read about. The promised land that God speaks of to Abram. When, when Lot and Abraham divide and Lot takes the plain of the Jordan, God says to Abraham, he says, look all the way around, north, south, east, and west, all this land that you see I give to you. The promised land, Christ is our promised land. He is the land that flows with milk and honey. And in Christ, God promises that his children will inherit the earth. We're not going to just inherit a nation, a county, a region. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. So all God's promises are in Christ. So you might want to write these scriptures down, maybe make note of these and go back, because I'm not going to take the time to go in depth. Genesis 3, 15, Christ is the promised seed of the woman prophesied to come and crush the head of the serpent. Galatians 6 through 9, Paul is speaking to Gentile believers, and he says to them, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. It's not your Jewish heritage that makes you a son of Abraham. It is your faith in God that makes you a son of Abraham. Paul writes to these Galatians, these Gentile believers, and he says the promises that God gave to Abraham for his people, for his descendants, they belong to you because you belong to Christ. Galatians 3.14, the blessings of God has come upon the nations in Christ. The nations all. Do you know what the word Gentile means? The word Gentile simply means nations. So here was the point of view when you read the Old Testament and you see the word Gentile, or you read the New Testament and you see the word Gentile. Gentile is not a specific ethnic group that comes from some place on the planet. The word Gentile is just a... Uh, English transliteration of a Hebrew word that means nations. Gentile literally means nations. So whenever you see the word Gentile in the Bible, you can just translate it nations because that's what it means. And so from God's economy, from God's point of view, when we read the Old Testament, is there were two types of people on earth. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Or there was the Jewish nation, the Jews, God's chosen people, and there, were, there was everybody else. It didn't matter whether you were Greek or Roman or, or, or barbarian. It doesn't matter. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. If you weren't of the chosen nation, you were just from the other nation. And God made his covenant not with all the other nations. He made his covenant with who? With Abraham and his descendants. Now, that brings us to Galatians 3.16. Let's turn over there. Hold your place in Genesis. Let's go to Galatians. Galatians, if you're ever confused about all of this, about Jew and Gentile and, you know, how does the covenant uh, relate to me? I'm not a Jew. Do I have to, you know... That, see, that's what the early church wanted to do. They wanted to make everybody become Jewish in order for them to be saved. And... This, now we have the writing of the New Testament, which teaches us that that's not the case at all. That was never God's plan. And so in Galatians chapter 3, let's look at verse, um, let's just read together from verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promises of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed, God made a covenant with Abraham. That's what we're, 
we're seeing the beginning of this here in, in Genesis chapter 12. And Paul, writing to the Galatians, is going to quote from Genesis 12. And he's going to tell us exactly what Genesis 12 means. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So right there, he nails it down for us. Who is the promised seed? Christ is the promised seed. Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.28. Jew or Greek, slave or free, we are all one in Christ. That's why in the church, there is no place for racism or bigotry. Because God doesn't look at people based on their country of origin or the color of their skin. He doesn't look at that. He doesn't look at people based on the size of their bank account or their, the level they've achieved in society. The gospel abolishes those barriers. It abolishes them. And it says in a glorious way here, it says, Jew or Greek, slave or free, we are all one in Christ. Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are Abraham's seed in Christ, the Bible declares. Romans 6, uh, excuse me, Romans 9, 6 through 8. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, but those who are the children of the flesh. <coughs> excuse me. Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. In other words, we are not counted children in the flesh, but only in the spirit, in Christ, by grace, through faith. So 2 Corinthians 5, 16, and 17, this is what it teaches us. We therefore know no man any longer according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, we know him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Then verse 18 begins with, now all things are of God. So you see that God has abolished not only the distinctions in the flesh, but remember, let's go back to the flood. What was the flood teaching us? God was going to destroy all flesh, and we see John 12, 31. Now the judgment of this world has come. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I be lifted up, Jesus said, I will draw all to myself. So in the cross, God abolishes the flesh. God says, now the cross is the dividing line in all of history. God relates to man not by the flesh, but only in the spirit, in Christ. What does that mean? Now, God only knows two types of people on the earth. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter where you came from, who you were, what you're bad. None of that matters. It doesn't matter how good, how bad, how ugly you were. If you're in Christ, you've been redeemed. You, the old, has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're not in Christ, God has no relationship with you because he no longer regards any man according to the flesh. I read this study. It was real interesting. Um, it was a study based on... Um, they did it with... I can't remember exactly what the... Uh, uh, what the material they used, but it, it was some, um, it wasn't a plant, it was, I, I can't remember what it was, I'm sorry. But here's what I got, here's what I do remember. They did this study, and you know, you've heard it said that if you talk to your plants, they, they thrive, and, and they actually kind of, there's some scientific reasons why that is true. Um, it's not because plants have emotions, okay? But, but here's the thing, that they, they did this study in Japan, and, and it was, this, these scientists, they, they would talk to these certain things. And um, 
They would say affirming things. They would say negative things. And then the third category, they totally and completely ignored. And it was interesting, the, the, the things that they affirmed, you know, uh, they thrived more than the things that were spoken to but in a negative manner. But you know what did the worst? You know what showed the, the greatest ill effect? It was that which was ignored. This is the reality. When we are not in Christ, and we're dead in our sin and in our death, God is indifferent to us because he cannot have a relationship with us apart from Christ. The good news is we were dead and separated. We were in a condition that was utterly, totally, completely hopeless. There was no way for us to climb out of, crawl out of, work our way out of, pay our way out of the hole that we were in because of sin and death that came and separation from God that came as a result of sin. The good news is, is that God didn't lower a rope to us. He didn't put a ladder down in the hole for us to climb out of. You know, the good news is that God came to where we were in our utter hopelessness, and he lifted us out himself by the mighty arm of his strength in Christ. And we're going to see this as we go through that we who were not a people are now the people of God. So when God spoke to Abram saying, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is no doubt that God was speaking of the blessing that would ultimately come through Christ. And God blessed Abraham and he blessed those who blessed him and he cursed those who cursed him. You, you can read through Genesis and see how God did that. But the promised seed, the promise that was prophesied to come was Christ. It was Christ who was to come through Abraham. And now Christ has come. And the ultimate fulfillment of blessing and cursing is now in Christ. So if we bless Christ, we trust in him if we trust in him, we're blessed. If we curse Christ, if we reject him, we are cursed. Those who trust in Christ become the people of God and the great nation that he promised to bring through Abraham. So the church is the great nation God has always held in view to be his people. So back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God says to Abram, I'll make you a great nation, and in you all the nations or all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul affirms this in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentile or the nations by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, if in you all the nations shall be blessed. Do you know why America is a blessed nation? Because America was birthed in the affirmation of Christ and the gospel. Her laws and her founding documents were rooted and grounded in the truth of who God is and the message of his gospel. And that is the truth. America is not a Christian nation. Nations aren't Christian. Okay? Just because America was founded on certain principles doesn't make America a Christian nation. 
And certainly, we have to say today that America is not a Christian nation. Our official status with the United Nations is not Christian. Pray not for America, pray for Americans. People. You know how nations get saved? Because people get saved. God's not going to save the White House. He's not going to save the Capitol buildings. He's not going to save the Supreme Court buildings. Who cares about those buildings? Here's, here's how much God cares about buildings. In 70 AD, God destroyed the temple that Israel made an idol out of. And he destroyed the whole system of sacrifice. Why? Because he brought the fulfillment of it in his son. In the Gospel of John, John records this. Jesus told them straight up, and they just went right over their head. You know how this nation is going to be transformed? Because you're going to be transformed, and I'm going to be transformed. Because people are going to be transformed. So God has always had the church in view. He's always had a people redeemed from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation, both Jew and Gentile. This is what John 3.16 is declaring when it says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God so loved the world. He loves people not just who are Jewish. He loves everybody. And His Nation, his one holy nation is going to be a multitude of people, a world of people brought together as one from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. Christ came to redeem the nations, to make one holy nation. The scripture teaches that salvation does not come through birthright or law keeping, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We must be born again of the Spirit of God. Jew and Gentile alike must become new creations through the new birth by grace through faith in Jesus. And when they do, they become the people of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, His very own special people. This is realized where? Only in Christ. Listen, this isn't realized because you signed a membership form. We're going to have a membership class September 7th. And and you'll have an opportunity to sign a membership covenant. That doesn't, that's not your ticket to heaven. That doesn't, that doesn't make you loved by God any more than you are right now. Our membership in the body of Christ is not from a class. It's not from a denomination. It's not from anything like that. Membership class helps us. It helps you. It helps us live in community together to, to know what we believe and why we believe what we be in. And, and, and why we preach the way we preach, and why we teach the way we teach. If you notice, I'm not real big on just coming in here and giving you a highly motivational, feel-good message. My main focus is the Scripture. Because the Bible doesn't command me to motivate you. The Bible commands me to equip you and to teach you the Scripture and to rightly divide the word of truth. Really, my motivation means nothing. My ability to motivate you isn't going to do squat for you. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So I believe the most important thing that I can give to you is God's word that is eternal. And it is this word that will change and transform your heart and save you. So these things are realized in Christ alone. Because it's only in Christ that God fulfills His promises and blesses His people with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3. And if we are in Christ, we are the church and we are the people of God. So in Christ, God establishes one nation and one people from the many. Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15 Paul writes that Christ himself is our peace, having made both Jew and Gentile one and created in himself one new man. From the many come the one, one new man. 
This is why Paul writes again in his letter to the Colossians that Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3.11 Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. Listen, but Christ is all and in all. So in Christ we are now God's own special people. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says in Christ we are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, his own special people, that in Christ we are now, we who were not a people, verse 10, have now become the people of God. We were once without mercy, but now we have become partakers of God's mercy. Hallelujah. So the promise of God to make Abraham a great nation was always to be fulfilled in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. From eternity, listen, from eternity. I say this all the time to you guys. When did eternity begin? It didn't. Because by nature, eternity has no beginning and it has no end. So when did God dream up this plan after he created man and he saw man messed everything up and says, boy, gee, what are we going to do now? Uh, Jesus, you got any good ideas? Yeah, you know, I could go down there and die on the cross for them. What do you think about that, Father? No, that's not how it happened. From eternity, before God ever said, let there be light, from eternity, this is the eternal plan and purpose of God. Adam was never meant to be the man. Noah was never meant to be the man. Abraham was never been, meant to be the man. Isaac, Jacob, never meant to be the man. David was never meant to be the man. The man that was always eternally meant to be was Jesus, the son of the living God. He was the one man who had walked this earth in sinless perfection, fulfilling the righteous requirement of God revealed to us in the law. The law was not given to make us righteous, the law was given to reveal our unrighteousness and our total inability to attain God's standard. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't lower the bar. He shows them that the bar was always much higher than you ever thought. Because not only was it you keeping the law physically with your members out here, but in your heart and in your mind, that was always God's standard. Who can fulfill that? What man could walk in that kind of sinless perfection? Only one man. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. Born under the law, but in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, God sent forth his Son to redeem man. This is the gospel. So the promise seed that was to come through Abraham is Christ, and we become Abraham's seed through faith in Jesus. By trusting in Jesus, we have the assurance that we have been born again in the power of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith. In our new birth, through faith, we become children of God. The Holy Spirit is what you receive at the moment you are born again. And you have the fullness of His power dwelling in you. You just don't know it. So what do you need to do? You need to grow up and you need to mature in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ so that you understand what has been given to you freely by grace in Christ. So Christ is the promise, the great promise that God has always held in view. The church is the great nation that God has always held in view. Christ is the great name that God has always held in view to call His people. Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Philippians 2, 9 and 10, Therefore God also highly exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. That is a reality. The name of Jesus is a reality. The power and the authority 
that resides in the name of Jesus is not a future reality. It is an eternal reality. It is real right now. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Listen to Paul in Galatians 2.20. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are in Christ, your identity is no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit in Christ. Christ is all and in all. He is our only identity now and eternally. Everybody's running around on the earth trying to find themselves, trying to get an identity for themselves. We're doing exactly what they wanted to do back in Babel, trying to make a name for themselves. If I could just get my 15 minutes of fame. Really, people want more than 15 minutes. But if 15 minutes is all I can do, I'll, I'll, I'll get that. And if I could just get on Jimmy Kimmel Live, you know. We're all running around looking for something. Listen, the only identity you need and the identity that you should be seeking after above any and every other is your identity in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if men know your name. Does the Father know you in his Son? It doesn't matter if the world knows your name. Does hell know your name? Do the devils tremble because they know that you've been named with the name of Jesus? That your identity is not who you are or who you were in the flesh, but it is who you are now in the Son of God. If you are in Christ, you have been born again with God's incorruptible seed, and you have become the people of God. You're no longer in the flesh, but you are in the spirit if you are in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8, 9. Christ is all in all. He's our identity now and eternally. Your ethnicity, your nationality, your skin color, your social status, your pedigree, or your pedicure makes no difference. If you are in Christ, you are eternally His. Nothing can separate you from His love, and you will bear the fruit of his life even as you bear his name. I don't know what just happened. We got a buzz up here. That woman in the booth back there, can you fix this buzz? I don't get a chance to embarrass my wife very often, but when I do, I, t I usually take advantage of it. In Christ you become his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. This is direct, quoting directly from Peter, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Let's read that. Turn over there to 1 Peter, back of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Praise God. But you are a chosen generation. Who is the you? You who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. That's who we are in Christ. That's our reality in Christ. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 22 through 25, Peter writes this, since you have, been since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere... How do we obey the truth? What does God command us to do? To trust Jesus. They said to Jesus in, in John's gospel, recorded in, I think, the sixth chapter, Jesus, what? We want to do the works that you do. We want to do the works of God. What are the works of God? He said, this is the work of God that you believe 
on the name of him who he sent. This is what we are commanded to do. This is how we obey the truth. We trust Jesus. And out of trusting Jesus, everything else falls in its proper place. The spirit and sincere love of the brethren love one another fervently with a pure heart. If we love Jesus, we're going to love one another. If we love God, we're going to love our brother. That's what John writes in his first epistle. Having been born again, verse 23, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Do you see how important it is to have the word dwelling in you? I'm not talking about the letter that kills. I'm talking about the spirit that brings life. Christ is the living word of God. He is the word made flesh. How does he live in us? He lives in us now by the Holy Spirit. By the word of God, by the gospel, we have been born again in the incorruptible seed who is Christ. In Christ, God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham and to all the families of the earth. In Christ, you have been given his name. Turn to Revelation 2.17. Let's read this verse together. Revelation 2.17, or it should be up on the screen there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, here Jesus says, attention, attention, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Are we a church today? Yes, we are. So the Spirit of God is talking to us right now through the Holy Scripture. Hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Revelation 3.12, let's read this together. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Do you know what name it is? Do you know what name John is writing about in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3? It is the name of Jesus. You don't have some secret name in heaven. God doesn't have a secret name for you in heaven. No, the name that you are named with is the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus. And the reason you know it is because you know Jesus and He knows you. The world doesn't know Christ. Read John 8. The world doesn't know. The world can't receive Christ because the world doesn't know Christ because the world is not of Christ. It doesn't know His name. You know His name because you have received Christ by grace through faith. So this is the name of Christ that we have been given, a name no one knows except him who receives it. So do you know his name? Have you received the name of Christ? It's an important question. Do you know his name? Have you received the name of Christ? Here's my challenge to you. There is a difference between knowing of a person or their name and knowing a person. I can read a book and know about a person. I can read a biography about anybody I want to and know a lot about them. Does it make me know the person? A lot of people know about Jesus. They know of Jesus. I'm going to tell you right now, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. You will never see heaven because you know about Jesus. You can memorize this Bible from cover to cover and know only about Jesus if you do not come to know Him. If you don't have an encounter with Him, if you don't have a relationship with Him, you will never know Him. 
I can read a book. I can know about a person, but I'll never know that person until I enter into a relationship with them. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus is the difference between life and death. If you do not know that you know Him, the Bible commands that you cry out to Him, call upon His name. And if you will call upon His name, the promise of God is that He will save you. He will save you if you will call upon His name. How do we come to know Jesus? How do we come to be in relationship with Him? When we are born again, when we by grace through faith put our trust in Jesus, the Bible says we are made one with Him. We are joined to Him. I read it to you from Galatians 2.20. When you become crucified with Christ, you are raised with Christ. And it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. You know, a lot of people don't like that because that, you know what that means? What's happened to me? I'm crucified, dead, and buried. I don't have a say any longer. Jesus is not my co-pilot. He's the one driving the ship. It's Christ who now lives. So are you... Are you in a place where you can say that you know Jesus? Or do you just know about Him? Are you revealing the person of Jesus? Are you revealing the name of Jesus and the life of Jesus to those you come in contact with? Are you growing in your relationship with the Savior? Are you helping and encouraging others in their relationship in Christ? That's what it means to be a disciple. At the very least, that's, that is a main ingredient of discipleship. How are we revealing Christ to those around us? It's not by taking a discipleship class. It's not by, listen, it's, it's how we do everything. It's how we live our lives every moment of every day. Sometimes we blow it big time. Listen, you hang around me long enough, you'll see I blow it big time. Ask my family, they'll tell you. We fall, but we don't stay down. God doesn't leave us down. Read the 23rd Psalm. It's a beautiful picture, not of death, but of life. How the good shepherd comes. And when we fall down, when we become downcast, he comes alongside of us and he lifts us up. He strengthens us and he cleanses us because he's leading us to a destination that we can't achieve on our own. These are important questions that go to the heart of what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. This is what we are called to do. And we do it every moment of every day and in every way. Christian, you have been given the name of Jesus. Do not waste it. Let's all stand. Father, we ask you today, Lord, in humility, confessing our need of you, confessing our weakness. We didn't receive your promises because we deserve them. We received them by grace. Lord, we didn't become part of the great nation that you are establishing in all the earth for all eternity and all glory because we deserved it or we did something to work to gain a position there. We didn't pay a fee, take a class. Lord, we were granted amnesty because of what Jesus did. We were made citizens of heaven by grace given to us freely through the finished work of the Son of God. And unless we trust in that finished work, we have no hope. Lord, we weren't given your name because we were born into it in our first birth through our natural 
heritage. We were given your name because we were born again by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And you, Lord, have given us your name, which is above all names. And you've given us all the power and all the authority and all the love and all the glory that goes with that name. <clears throat> we confess, God, that it's only by you, and only by your grace that we have received that name. We ask, God, that you would help us to be a people that would not waste the name that has been given to us through the price that was so dearly paid on the cross at Calvary, that we would walk worthy of our calling, that we would seek in everything to bring glory and honor to your name, to make your name great, to make your name known, that men would glorify you. That men would see that you truly sent your Son. Help us, God, as your people. Given your name and all your promises, help us, God, to go from this place today in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus. Help us to make it known in every way To your glory, we ask this, we pray this, in Jesus' name, amen.